0: This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning.
1: Good morning. morning. (laughs) Uh, My name is Bill Magnus, and uh, I'm really happy to be here. It's been a while since I spoke here, and when Choro asked me to speak, I knew it was this weekend after this terrific gathering of, you know, the 20 sanghas and Suzuki Roshi's Rokishi, tradition that Austin Zen Center hosted, and I'd echo everybody's thanks for everyone who did everything to make that happen. It's terrific that uh, we would we'll do that. But I, I figured when Charo asked me to speak this weekend, it was because all the regular teachers and speakers and leadership would be hung over, because <laughs> I you know, I hear 20 sanghas who haven't seen each other in a while, I hear rager. <laughs> and, uh, but, so I figured they needed some amateur, you know, to step in uh, to help them out. So here I am. And so who am I? I'm. Uh, uh, I, I know several of you. I don't know several of you. Um, I was one of the first few people through the door uh, at our first Austin dinner. and um, I started sitting in 1994. And I ran around and uh, I sat sashine with Father Pat Hawk, who's a priest and uh, Zen teacher in Amarillo, Texas, uh, and then went to City Center, and I did a session at Green Gulch. I was a guest student at San Francisco Zen Center in 1995, and then founded this Zen Center along with some friends. And that mainly meant a lot of kind of startup activity, you know, like finding space. Uh, I'm a lawyer, so I did the lawyer parts. You know, I wrote the bylaws and I wrote the 501c3 application. Which I found recently uh, in my house. And it's it's kind of cute. And then snagging AustinZenCenter.org. So uh, who knew how to list? Uh, for example, uh, more, not John Dinsmore anymore,
0: but Greg uh, knew how to use the web. People
1: found the Zen
0: Center.
1: And just become a tremendous gift, uh, like this building um, that we were all those days. And, and, uh, and something in there, I, the practice changed me. I think that when we talk, you put your shoulders down and your head up, it's like from the crown of your head, it's like there's a fishing line. Right, and when I hear that, I still kind of sit up a little straighter, right? Because it's just, oh, that makes sense. You know, it's like coming up, and there's some fishing line from my heart that just showed up at some point, point. Um, and it wasn't arduous practice or not arduous practice or whatever. It just showed up and has just stayed in place, and I think sort of led me along. Um, and I came in depressed. Uh, I, I, often said, I don't think you show up, at least in my time, you didn't show up at a Zen center in Texas unless you had a problem. <laughs> 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 and you grew up, you know, so you had a problem, and I had a problem, and, and I sought relief, and I found a lot, um, and I came in very ambitious, and I uh, probably still am, but learned a lot about outcomes, you know, and what mattered to me and what didn't. And I find that everybody I know who embraces our practice there's something in that gentle little hook in your heart that attaches and it attaches for different people for different reasons for some sitting is central and that's where we feel that attachment you know for others it's our ceremonies or our working together or you know just the, the community aspect of, of our practice and our centers studying the philosophy and the psychology you know they're passed down by our ancestors um, for some people, it's expressed together or some people alone. Uh, some people here, some people outside of here. It's all different for everybody. For me, it was it was receiving the precepts and it was really taking the Bodhisattva vows that uh, drove it from here. That's what got me my, my first one of these that I sewed very poorly. My first Rakasu, there's a little stitching right around in here uh, in the middle of the Rakasu that's... Very out of order. And I know it was because I was watching the Indiana Pacers in a playoff game. I remember Reggie Miller was shooting. It's pathetic.
0: You know, but I, I just like, there he is.
1: That's me. Right? That's what I was doing that day. I can't think that's part of the point. But the Bodhisattva vows, I'll repeat them for you if you uh, uh, don't know them or remember them. Beings were vow to say them. Illusions about, and the Dharma gates are boundless. There was a lot of comfort in making, um Early in my practice, I did a lot of shopping around. I was an American consumer, right? It was like, do I like Tik Not Ha more? He really admired Blanche, who became, you know, was ultimately our founder of our temple and uh, was attracted to San Francisco Zen center in the Soto tradition. And I was kind of like, okay, that sounds fine. And actually I think that was a good thing that was letting go. Um, I went with that, you know, and I'm, when I look back, I think that letting go, that not fretting too much about my choice, uh, was my first step on the path. Um, I convinced myself at, at least at that point and on that topic to get over myself. And I understood that in the tradition, the choice was different. You know, the making of the choice was different. I grew up Catholic, and I grew up accustomed to the culture of the Roman Catholic Church, and that's where all my personal angels and archetypes and ghosts, both holy and not, uh, come from uh, and still live somewhere in my uh, mind. And there you, you make a definitive choice, and the consequences of choosing poorly can be eternal and really, really big. Um, if you don't choose right, you might just have to have lunch by yourself, um, you can be <laughs> excluded. Uh, and so I I made this choice of tradition sort of lightly and I couldn't really relax in it though until I had some, uh, until I made a commitment, until I had some standards to follow, until I had something to be accountable to. You know, Catholic boy feels great comfort when given vows to live by, when there's accountability, when there's a measuring stick. So I took these vows and now I'm accountable and I, I have some things to do and I've found this is, isn't just from my religious tradition, but I get great comfort in having things to do. And it's something this practice offers us. So save all beings end all delusions, enter all Dharma gates, become the Buddha way. Hmm. Well, all right. That's a commitment beyond this lifetime. I don't think that's something I'm satisfying right away. And this is what I realize what Zen does to you. Or to me anyway. Take vows that are impossible to fulfill. Do you say you're gonna follow them? Yes. Uh but that's ludicrous, right? Yes. Uh, But you still say you're gonna follow them. Yes? So how are you gonna do that? Well, that's my question. Uh and that's kind of what I come here today with. And I'll spend the rest of my time giving a little sampler for how I address that question. So this talk. What I'm doing right now is a good place to start on that little inquiry. So Choro asked me to give a talk and I thought, well, you know, one of the last times I gave a talk here, I think I was, it was my last talk as head student just ages ago. It's like 2004. And during that practice period, I worked on a koan from the book of Serenity here, St. <laughs> it's a koan called, um, case number 42, Nanyang's water pitcher. Right. And I worked it over during the whole practice period. Gave talks about it, practiced a lot with it. And one day during Rahatsu Seshin, which is the which is the end of my particular time as head student, I was gonna give a talk about my Koan again. And I was inspired to research some different source material. It's like during session when it's you know we're the silent part of session you know, I just but I was just very inspired to go to the library, you know, our library upstairs and and find something. And so I picked up this book in the library, just for, for no particularly good reasons. Dogen's Extensive Record, right? And this is a very large book, if you're listening later. What is it? It's there's it's a very beautiful book. There's got to be a thousand pages in here. Very big book, don't you think? So I just picked the book up, and my memory is I turned to a page, and I found what I needed, right? So... I'll back up a little bit. So who's you know, who's Dogen? Dogen lived from 1200 to 1253. It's a long time ago, right? And then I'll just, I'll read you a little, I'll read you a little um, Dogen. But I'll tell you first what I, what I talk, what I'm going to talk about is um, his Dharma Hall discourse number 96, okay? Now, so when we talk about Dogen first, let's, let me just give you a little <coughs> intro, I and mean, most of you know this, but Let me tell you a little bit about him. So, in 1227, the Japanese monk Dogen returned to Japan from four years of study in China. During his remaining 25 years, he composed an extraordinary volume of writings, now widely prized for their philosophical profundity, poetic virtuosity, and subtle evocative wordplay. Dogen is remembered as the founder of the Soto branch of Japanese Zen. You'll recall we dedicate our practice to, among others, Dogen, every time we dedicate practice. But he disdained sectarian labels. He said Zen, saying that Zen was an extremely foolish name, and that if you use the name Zen school, you were not descendants of Buddha ancestors and also have poisonous views. (laughs) Nevertheless, in the long history of what is now considered the Zen tradition, no master has left a legacy of writings as voluminous and comprehensive in so many aspects of teaching and practice as a Heidogen. Although he was a medieval monk born eight centuries ago, his writings about time, space, Buddha nature, and the subtle character of spiritual pursuit and realization are now widely esteemed by contemporary philosophers, physicists, poets, environmentalists, and religious thinkers and practitioners. That's from the introduction to the book. So Dogen's speaking to us from, you know, the mid-1200s, early 1200s, and in... Dharma Hall Discourse Number Ninety Six. What, what's a Dharma Hall Discourse? First, right. So, I know there's a lot. Of, a lot of you probably read things like the Shobogenzo, other you know Dogen's work. The Dharma Hall Discourses are briefly described here. Uh, the Jodo—that's the volume one through seven—that's in this long book. The recorded Dharma Hall Discourses, Dogen's formal talks to his assembly, are called Jodo in Japanese, literally "ascending in the hall." blah, 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 as mentioned above, which I'm not gonna read you. The Jodo is the form often used by Chan teachers in China in the traditional recorded sayings. The Dharma hall discourses are often very brief. After leaving the monks hall where they meditated, took meals and formal ceremony and slept, each in his assigned place, the monks would come to the Dharma hall. After entering, they stood in lines and listened to the teacher who was seated high on the altar Disciples were not seated, as in our modern custom of Dharma talks. And I started thinking, we're doing the same thing. I'm on a high pedestal. Um, But we're doing the same thing as Dogen way back in those times, uh, talking, listening about the Dharma. So in Dharma Hall Discourse 96, it begins this way. Hall Discourse 96 is entitled The Unmastered Sounds and Colors of the Careful Heart. Study and practice of the Buddha Dharma is not achieved easily. Fair enough. In the A.A. era and in the later Han Dynasty, the name and form of the teachings were heard a little bit. In the Putong era, in the Liang Dynasty, the ancestral teacher Bodhidharma came from the West. If the ancestral teacher had not come from the West, nobody else would know where to find the genuine Dharma. How could they know about going beyond Buddha? And here, you know, we're looking hundreds of years back into the past before Dogen, reflecting on what practice looked like then. And when Bodhi Dharma, who we also dedicate our practice to every time, our ancestral badass who, you know, stared at the wall for nine years and is credited with everything from founding Zen and China, to bringing it to the West, to being, I think, the Shaolin Kung Fu master um, also. He's mm-hmm. here. He's legendary. Uh, and as the footnote, our, our friend of friend of this Zen Center, Taigan Van Leighton and Shohaku Okamura were the translators of this book. In fact, wrote one of those introductions I read from. And if you're listening, they're friends of the pod. Um, but they're friends of our center and have spent some time here. They note in, on footnoting here, the Ehe era in the later Han Dynasty lasted from 58 to 76 AD CE. It is said that in the tenth year of this era, the first Buddhist sutras were introduced in China. The Putong era lasted from 520 to 527, the period when it was supposed in Dogen time that the Chan founder Bodhidharma arrived in China from India. Modern scholars are still disputing many aspects of the historicity of Bodhidharma's life, which I but he's our ancestor, and so you have to go here, like considering all that's gone on. And if we hadn't had these ancestors come, how could they know about going beyond Buddha? Well, what's going? What's that? Going beyond Buddha. Rev. Anderson wrote the introduction to this book, and I'll give you a little bit of his take on that. There's a principle in Zen Buddhism that for our practices to be alive and relevant to the actual problems of our current suffering as sentient beings, we must go beyond the previous ways the tradition has gone beyond itself. Here in this wonderful translation of the extensive record, we have a separate transmission that goes beyond the Zen tradition of separate transmissions beyond the Buddhist scriptures. Now, thanks to the great and loving efforts of our two devoted students of Dogen, we're challenged by this vast pile of previous records from our brilliant ancestor. These are records of his repeated attempts to free his self-expression from the Chinese Zen tradition, of trying to leap free from the Buddhist tradition.
0: Mm.
1: From the beginning, it was about respecting a tradition and leaping beyond a tradition. And one more part from Reb. If we just sit and watch while not participating in the dynamic way that dogen leaves the tradition behind in the dust the dust will engulf our present generation so dogen's thinking way back then like how do they know how do they know how to do this and how do i pass that along and so he goes on discussing the profound and expounding the mystery are not right. Expounding mind and nature are not right. Now, when I first approached Zen, I originally found it in books, often, you know, big books, like these, right? This is how I would understand it. This is how I would take it into my mind and see if this was for me or not. You know, how else would you understand it? And then I'd start reading the books, and the books, had the first chapter, most of the books would be like, here's where you put your leg so they don't fall asleep when you're doing zazen. Here's how you hold your head when you're doing zazen. I'm like, this is like a yoga book. You know, this is boring. I don't want to read about this. Where's the, where's the, you know, mystery and where's the profound part, right? And it all started with sitting zazen. So I quit reading the books. You know, after, for a while I realized that once I really did start to, to sit and see it, if i didn't quit reading the books that part of me that just wanted the books would take over and so for a long time really didn't (laughs) i mean just kept you know sitting and showing up and coming and didn't investigate this rich treasury of dusty records you know and when i practiced early on sometimes i get angry with that part of myself you know that part of myself that wanted the profound you know that wanted the, the mystery revealed to me and it was just one of the many parts of me that showed up, you know, when I really started doing Zazen. And I'd sit and I, you know, some conversation would start up like it does in my mind and I'd shut it off, you know, and it's, another one would start up and I'd, you know, concentrate, focus. And then finally one morning I remember an image just came up into my head and it was my it was my hand, you know, like this. And there was a door. And inside the door there was a party. And I remember telling whatever it was that came up, go be with your friends. Come on in, be with your friends. And then I closed the door, <laughs> and they they could have their party, right? And it's kind of silly to think about, but they just kept showing up, and I kept offering them inside. And when I looked inside the door, they were having a good time. And I just kind of realized, you know, nobody has to die. Right? There's not a single part of me. Or any of these things that arise, that has to die, that has to go away. And I judge thoughts before they're even fully thoughts. I'm judging them. I'm deciding that's a bad one. You know, this is a good one. (laughs)
0: Let's go
1: with that. (laughs) So instead, it was just you know whatever they are ones bad ones and different ones just come be with your friends so maybe discussing and expounding well, that's kind of what i'm doing now wasn't it really you know it so so dogan goes on so goes on in case 96 or lecture 96 and he says so he said expounding mind and nature are not right if we release the profound mystery to the place of non-abiding and if we send the mind, nature, to the place of non-attachment, and I'm thinking now we're getting somewhere, right? <laughs> I mean, the place of non-abiding, non-attachment, these are concepts that as I you know developed in my practice, were like, yeah, this is this is the good stuff, right? This is letting go. It's a lot of what it's all about. Okay, so we're gonna send them to the place of non-attachment, at dogen says if we, if we release the profound mystery to the place of non-abiding, and if we send the mind nature to the place of non-attachment, this is still seeking after a livelihood within the realm of sounds and colors. Seeking a livelihood in the realm of sounds and colors. So trying to get a job, trying to have a place, trying to find something, you know, permanent in the realm of sound and colors. Also, I notice he says, you know, sending the mind, sending the mind nature to the place of non-attachment, it's probably sending the mind anywhere is probably not gonna be it, right? So the realm of sound and colors, Well, I mean, the the footnote in the book, thank you to Shah Okamura, tells us, you know, this is is the the world of the senses, you know, sort of the, the outside world. And I'm just gonna, you know, you've all read this probably pretty recently, but you know, remember the Heart Sutra, right? Shariputra, all dharmas are marked by emptiness. They neither arise nor cease. They're neither defiled nor pure, neither increase nor decrease. Therefore, given emptiness, there's no form, no sensation, no perception, no mind, no perception, no formation, no consciousness, no eyes, no ears, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind, no sight, no sound, no smell, no taste, no touch, no object of mind, no realm of sight, no realm of mind consciousness world of sounds and colors. There's neither ignorance nor extinction of ignorance, neither old age and death, nor extinction of old age and death. No suffering, no cause, no cessation, no path, no knowledge, and no attainment with nothing to attain. The Bodhisattva relies on Prajna Paramita, and the mind is without hindrance. So it's with <clears> nothing to attain. And I guess I'm, what I read Dogen telling me is, if you're trying to attain, yeah. Yeah. Maybe not so much yet. And I can tell you, um, i spent a lot of time seeking attainment, my career, my family here, right? I mean, it's a, I'm a dad, two kids, husband, I ran a company. That's all that's way up in the realm of sounding colors. All of those things. Those are all out living in the world, in the world of sensation. And I'm being reminded sometimes rudely throughout all that of the wisdom of non-attachment um, because you know whether you're attached or not, impermanence is the law. Impermanence doesn't really care if you're attached or not. It's just a question of how much you wanna suffer. Um, so then Dogen goes on and says, Please so tell me this is still seeking after a livelihood within the realm of sound and colors. When we remove the profound mystery mind nature, then sounds and colors are simply without masters. And a commentary that's added by the interpreter says, you know, sounds and colors are without masters, without owners, it refers to directly experiencing sense objects, not in the context of subject and object, but without any attachment without anything to attain. Now that sounds simple, just like saving all beings and entering all those Dharma gates. Right? So being in the world in that way was on my mind a lot when I was head student back in 2004. And so I, I chose this koan, this nine water pitcher as a way to finish that. And I don't particularly know, why I chose this koan, it just I happened upon it. So I'm going to read it to you. Now remember, these don't have to really make sense right off the bat, right? So I'm going to, I'm going to read it a little bit. So the case is this: A monk asked national teacher Zhang of Nanyang, "What is the virachana of one's own body?" The national teacher said, "Bring me the pitcher of clean water." The monk brought the pitcher. The national teacher said, put it back where it was before. The monk asked again, what is virachana in one's own body? The national teacher said, The ancient Buddha is long gone. I know. That's <laughs> what I'm saying, right? What? So let me start with Vairachana. Who's Virachana? i read a little description I found online because so I really like this. And the, uh, Vairachana is the cosmic embodiment of the historical Buddha. Of Vairachana is regarded as the highest form, a god of light whose reflection throughout the universe is represented as endless. His wisdom is the wisdom of the Dharmadhatu. The Dharmadhatu is the realm of truth in which all things exist as they really are. Vairachana's wisdom is also referred to as the all pervading wisdom of the Dharmadhatu, the absolute Buddha nature. I imagine Vairachana, Vairachana, I'm saying right, as a like a Marvel hero. Right? He's got like laser eyes, you know, and I, I see him like landing one of those three-point stances, you know, and just ripples, you know, with some sort of CGI. You know, or it's like if that doesn't resonate, he's Mewtwo in the Pokemon universe. <laughs> it's the strongest, the hardest to catch, you know. So this guy's saying to the teacher, like, you know, what's the vibe if There was Virochana. There's this ultimate cosmic Buddha. Where is it in my own body. And what does he tell him to do? He says, go get the water pitcher. And I've embodied this. I've acted this out when I was a student. It's like my teacher said, act it out. I was like, okay, I got a water pitcher. I walked over, I got it. I put it over, I put it back. <laughs> Plainest thing you could possibly do. And then after he brings the water pitcher back, he's again like, okay, I did the thing, right? I did the teacher thing. I brought the water pitcher back and forth. Now, the old Buddha's long gone. It's pretty disappointing, right? So you explore this a little bit more, and you know, in these koans, you have the case, and then you have these commentaries, and people have written little verses and poems, and it kind of goes on. So, so the, the commentary after this one, instead of explaining it, it just tells you a different story. Thank you. Um, so the commentary is, uh, Shuang asked Dao Wu, what is enlightenment that meets the eye? Dao Wu called to a novice who responded. Dao Wu said, add some water to the wash basin. After a while, he asked Xuang, What did you just ask? As Sichuan was about to repeat it, Dao Wu went back to his room. Sichuan thereupon had an insight. Still? No? Okay. (laughs) The national teacher, and from our story, right? He said, go move the water pitcher, bring it back. The national teacher, because of his kindness and compassion, had a conversation that went down into the weeds but those who appreciate his benevolence are few. Tian Tong therefore gathers flowers and scoops water. His verse says, this is the verse that follows, birds coursing in the sky, fishes being in the water, and rivers and lakes forgetting, and clouds and sky they get their will, the doubting mind a single thread, before the face a thousand miles, knowing benevolence, requiting benevolence. How many people do? And the commentary that follows says, the birds of the sky, the flight of birds in the sky, the fish in the water, their roosts are ever more peaceful, their life is ever more harmonious. Zhang Shui said, when the spring is dry, the fish together on the land, puff at each other to moisten each other with wetness from their mouths. This does not compare to forgetting each other in rivers and lakes. Chan Master Tongui from Bai Chao says, It's like flying birds in the sky. They don't know the sky is their home. The fish swimming in the water, forget the water is their life. We Feng said, the fish are not conscious of the water. People are not conscious of air. Illusion is not conscious of reality. Enlightenment is not conscious of emptiness. And it was this part about the fish uh, that's what I found when I was looking before my last talk. And there's something to me that's so touching. It's something about, you know, our nature. That sort of tragedy of, like, the fish lying in the, the dry stream. And they don't belong there, you know. They don't know what's happening. And they're, you know, like, puffing the little bit of water they have left to, like, to the one next to them. I mean, what, you know, this is love. This is the love we send to each other when we're at our best, right? Um, giving the last we have in circumstances we don't understand to others. It felt like a very high calling. And then, you know, then you stop you're like, okay, that's loving each other. But there's other ways. There's... We don't know we're in the water all the time. You know, like sometimes when we're puffing at each other, we don't need to, there's so much more available. We don't feel the air around us. I know I ride a bike. I don't feel the tailwind. We don't, but it's there all the time, right? It's benevolence. You know, the benevolence that we that is seldom given, knowing benevolence, requiting benevolence. How many people do? And seeing something in the not attaching to whatever it is, to all my friends in the party. And realizing there might be an opportunity to be in the air and realize the air's there and supporting me all the time, to swim in the water as I like, but understand the water is supporting me and everything else around me. Uh, that's even more love than lying in the dry stream. It's richer, there's more to it, and it's always there. And it's extraordinary to think how hard it is to to remember that. So for Dogen, at the end of this case, or in this lecture, he says, when we remove the profound mystery, mind, nature, then sounds and colors are simply without masters. Why is it like this? And then in, in the, it says he paused. And again, I'm like thinking, like this is in 1230, and
0: they're
1: like, he paused. <laughs> they remembered. He stopped for a second. And he said, coarse, grasping mind loses it. Determined, careful heart attains it. Beyond our minds, into our bodies, which I think we often think of when what's our heart versus our mind, into our bodies and then beyond our bodies you know and out with others out with other minds and out with other bodies out into the water up into the air and you remember dogen also taught us probably you know more famously to study the buddha way is to study the self to study the self is to forget the self and to forget Mm -hmm. the self is to be enlightened by the ten thousand things so what ten thousand things It's everything, right? It's a way of saying everything. And when you notice, when you're paying attention, you see more and more of them. Uh, When you're, you know, able to maybe judge the thought a little less and experience the thought a little more, you're a little more curious about what it is instead of deciding what it is. Come in, friends. All the 10,000 things are there. And so, you know, when we notice serendipity, when we notice something inside, like, oh that's really cool. That's always happening. You're just noticed <laughs> because you happen to be paying attention at that moment. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I first started practicing, it was like, I need to be present all the time. That's the teaching. Oh, not present. Oh, not present, not present. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I like really I have to live that way, but you're not you know, it's like there's not serendipity, it's not lucky, it's it's always there. It's just a, you know, we find ourselves Given the opportunity to do things, to have activities, to take vows that encourage us to be there for it. So, my example of 10,000 things, back to the beginning, I know I don't have that much time, back to the beginning, how did I prepare this talk? So, Shoro asked me to give a talk, like I said at the top, right? So, I went to the extensive record because I thought that's where the fish story was that touched me so much. The fish story was in here, it was in the wrong book. So I go to the library upstairs, I'm like, I'm gonna find that fish story from back when, you know? And I open this book, this huge book, which I I haven't opened in 15 years, 18 years, however long. And I open it and there's a bookmark in it, right? It's got a little end soap on it, it's cute. Somebody in here may have written what's on this bookmark. The bookmark says, thanks for being friendly to me, And you know we're, we're pretty friendly here, but we're not always friendly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's like things has been friendly, and it's just stuck in the Dogen book. You know, it's like, well, what am I gonna do with that? It's really sweet. So I started looking at the pages around where the bookmark was, <laughs> right? and it just really struck me, you know, this deep history that's passed to us from Dogen, the, you know, the Dharma talks over hundreds of years. I'm saying at the very outset of what I've talked to you about today, study and practice of the Buddha Dharma is not achieved easily. And I just looked at the pages where the bookmark was and that's where, you know, number 96, the unmastered, whatever it is. Yeah, That's where it was. I found it. And, um, you know in these books we study and the forms and the practices and the moments of zazen when our hearts open there's anger there's doubt when we're reminded that shohaka akamura said this at one point in the book, or i think he said this in a talk i was in uh in the stories of the ancient teachers when they say he was immediately enlightened you know like the one i just read he was like he had insight that's not the equivalent of and he lived happily ever after right that's our start and it's being friendly holding the space and practice for each other with kindness when we involve our determined careful hearts they know we don't do this alone and that sometimes doing it's scary or intimidating or feels impossible to carry this non-attachment And it's being friendly to ourselves as well as everybody else. And when you're facing the wall, and not harshing out everything that comes into your head, you know, let them come to the party. So I read the pages where the bookmark was, and I found the unmastered sounds of colors and colors of the careful heart. And in my experience, being guided by your heart's different from being guided by your mind. Using only your mind doesn't grasp the Dharma. It's not your mind's fault. Dogen tells us that's the nature of the thing. We just need to bring more to it than that. And practice this by opening up to everything, acknowledging the air and the water and the colors and the sounds and smells and tastes, and all the time not forgetting that there's still emptiness. After I spent time as head student i got a new rock suit this one this isn't the one with the bad stitching this is the one with the good stitching this was made for me this is just a gift and uh, anita swan i need to remember uh was a great <clears throat> sewing teacher here and she was the leader of this but it was stitched by lots of people and it's really beautiful and i just remember being so touched by that that I yeah, have do that, you know. But they didn't know what else to do for me, because I'm not a priest. They couldn't give me the normal thing. You get the head student after he's there, she or she's the head student, which is make like some little longer piece of cloth in the robe or something, I don't know. They were like, well, we'll give you a new rakasu, which is great, because like I said, my first rakasu, terrible, <laughs> terrible. Uh, and in Dokkasan, at the end of that practice period, I told my teacher, Barbara Cohn, that I felt like, you know, the bodhisattva, that vow that I've been working with ever all that time, Bodhisattva is not allowed to deny anyone not allowed to turn away from any of the ten thousand things and I think about it, that's a lot and then I was kind of, you know, it includes all my friends in the room it includes the angels I've read about from another tradition that there's an angel for every blade of grass right they're just everywhere Protecting, advising, looking out for us. It includes all these things that we know. Maybe we just see them out of the corner of our eye, but we—if we grasp them—they're gone. Right. And my last little thing from my uh, non yangs water pitcher. This is the introduction to the koan. Washing the bowl, adding water to the pitcher are all aspects of the teaching Buddha work, hauling firewood and carrying water are all miraculous powers of sublime functions. Why can't you emanate light and make the earth move? Maybe you can't. The work we do is in carrying the waters and moving the water pitchers, but, uh, you know, maybe you can become Buddha's way, go through all those gates, save all those beings. Cause um, there's just so, so much out there, so much air to fly through, so much water to swim through. And so, you know, Barbara wrote on the back of this, you know, your teacher's right on the back of bureaucracy, right? So she wrote on the back of mine, after we had that talk, ordinary mind is the way, filled with angels and demons, goblins and fairies, as vast as the universe, as small as an atom. Wake up. Thank you. Do you have questions? Do you do questions now? Anyone have any questions?
0: Yeah. Thanks, Bill. We're going to talk. been coming here for a couple years, I hear your name all the time, and uh, I've been sitting with you more recently, so it's great to hear you.
1: I'm infamous infamous in several. Yes, well, <laughs> Several realms, <laughs> yeah. You, know, you are
0: you are a huge part of, of, of what's happening here. I, I've inherited much of your, uh, I've benefited from, from what you brought here, so thank you. It's sweet of you to say. Um, there's just one thing, there's so much in everything you just talked about, but one thing is, is um, Sticking out for me, and it's a minor thing in light like of everything that you said. Um, and that is, I'm thinking about the difference between when you're sitting, and um, I don't know who said this. Someone in this room will know, but the idea that um, you uh, let your thoughts go through, but you don't invite them for in, to sit for tea or something. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. You know. You know this. Yeah. Versus your analogy, which is you're literally inviting them into the party. You're letting them into the door and they're staying in the party. And it just, <laughs> out of everything you just said, I'm thinking about this kind of dichotomy between those two uh, metaphors mm-hmm. for, for how we are working or not working when we're sitting.
1: Well, I think that, and I think it was Suzuki Roshi, right? But I think, yeah, that said, don't invite him in for tea. And I think that, uh, I guess the way I think about this is, um, that when I invite them into the party, I close the door. I'm not in the party; I'm hosting the party,
0: huh.
1: but I don't go in because I—that's not what I'm doing right now. You know, it's like I love you. I'm glad you came. Uh, have a good time with all your friends, um, but that's not what I'm doing right now. I'll come back. So I, I think that's it. I think it's they're really kind of similar. It's like, just don't, don't get too engaged. But, I, and I think, I think my problem was when I heard that, you know, don't get engaged with them. I was kind of like, ah, block them off. You know, like stop thinking that, you know, that's bad thinking, uh, or, or, or I, I was counting to, to 10. I got to six and now I'm thinking about, you know, the blinds, uh, the leaf blower, <sighs> you know? And so that, for, that, for me, that was, a had, there had to be some way of saying like, I, I'm not going to kill you.
0: Reminds me of something that our friend Rich Graff here said in a meeting once. Um, you have to meet, greet, and meet and greet your thoughts with compassion when they come up. So yeah. Connects with to me that connects with what you're saying. Yeah,
1: it's I think it's the same, the same thing and some of them are don't seem worthy of compassion that and that's always the challenge right and some of them you don't want to invite in or you want, you really do want to ward off and you and if you can let them into you're doing something you know thank you mm-hmm. um, so you talked about
0: the fish hook mm-hmm. and fish line do you have a sense of something holding that line on the other side <laughs> that's a really good, that's a really
1: good idea really good thought um well the analogy only works <laughs> if there's something on the other end of the line i guess but i guess what i guess the way i think about that is like um It's kind of none of my business. Um, maybe it's God. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's something else. Um, but it's the it's the sense of knowing that this is for my heart, and this is how I can serve. You know, that keeps me from pulling back the other way and letting and letting it move me. So it. Or something else or something sort of like and i think about the you know the, the saving all beings part of the bodhisattva too it's like i'm gonna stay until everybody else is taken care of that's what i'm saying right i'm gonna die i'm gonna be reborn maybe it's gonna suck maybe it's not i felt like most of this life has been a vacation for good service in the past you know After you just keep showing up you know um so I don't know the answer, but it's a really good question to think about. I like that question a lot. I keep thinking about, it, and I think I mentioned this to Jessica this morning about our kid, actually. Uh, I think a lot about the catcher in the rye and the Bodhisattva. you know, in the book, the catcher in the rye, right, we are familiar with. We you know the catcher in the rye, what he was talking about, Holden Caulfield was he said he wanted to be the catcher in the rye. And what that was was somebody who stood in the rye grass, kind of on a cliff, and the kids would be running around and they look like they're about to run off the cliff and he just catch them and send them back and that's all they wanted to be and i kind of think of that bodhisattva vow like that too that's just like they keep coming and maybe i can just you know keep a few of them from going off the cliff that's enough you know um
0: I almost am hesitant to ask this question. Well, then don't. <laughs> <I'm Yeah>. <laughs> I think if someone asked something. it to me, I would just <laughs> um, So I'm not actually expect. like I, I just want to hear what, what oh. you're, where you're at on this. Um, do you think there's a difference between heart and mind?
1: Um, in practice, yeah, probably, but in reality, no. I mean, there's no difference between anything we made all of it up, you know, right? I mean, it's like in the absolute,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, hands, fingers, toes, colors, sounds, it's all, you know, like the thing I read, right? That I was like, oh, none of that's real.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But yeah, I think the, the way we've come to be and, and think and act, um, particularly in like sort of, you know, rationalism driven culture Uh, there's just like a, you know, there's a way of thinking about things and ways to solve problems. Mm -hmm. But then we know there's some other way of feeling about those things, and we're, we act on one or the other. And they're not, like I said, I mean, they're not really separate. And I think that's what I thought what was so uh, meaningful to me about what Dogen said is, I think of Dogen as like, like that first thing I read about him, like, he's this genius, poet, teacher, scholar said all these beautiful things that we've been repeating for hundreds and hundreds of years right and insightful you know and i think of him as like he's not a softy right Mm -hmm. and he's really smart you know and then he pauses and says it's not your mind it's your
0: heart Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, so it's just they gotta you know you gotta play together Thank you very much, thank you for having me, thank you for asking me to do this, and uh, I
0: guess we'll do the next thing, okay?